The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, uh, yeah, good morning again. And it's, um, it's, it's very sweet for me to be back here at IMC on a Sunday morning. I think it's been a few years since I've um, uh, been, been, been teaching um, in, in person, you know, in, in the morning. So I'm, I'm happy to see that it's going again and, you know, great to wish I could see your whole faces and uh, hopefully soon we'll, you know, getting things are getting, feel like they're getting back to normal, you know, kind of a new normal in a way, but, but that's, you know, what is normal anyway? It's always, there's always a new normal or something. So, um, I was thinking about, uh, how nice it is, how nice it feels to sit in the meditation posture. And, you know, if you've been meditating for a while, you know that we develop certain associations with the posture of meditation. Whatever, whatever it looks like, you know, for each of us, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be individual in a sense. And, you know, what... what what makes sense for our body. But to get into the meditation posture, um, which I think is physical, but it's also mental. You know, um, There's a wonderful teaching in the classic uh, Buddhist uh, text, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, by Suzuki Roshi, who is uh, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. And I know it came into my mind, but it says something like, when we assume the, the posture for meditation, and I just kind of think, yes, yes, when we assume the posture for meditation, oh, that's the, that, that means that's the posture where we can focus, right? And concentrate and clear our minds and settle our minds and... But he doesn't say that. He says, when we assume the posture of meditation, we can accept things as they are. You know? And just that flavor that this practice is um, not really about mastery. You know, it's not about accomplishing something and figuring something out. Um, Maybe there's some of that, or some of that comes along, but it's much more the flavor of it is about um, receiving, you know, accepting. Um, so in my mind, when, when I remember that, it's like this, this switch gets flipped from mastery to surrender. And mastery, you know, it's like there's a lot of ego in that, I think, you know. And there's a lot of me, and I'm going to do something and get something, or maybe I won't get something, and that's awful too. It's worse. Um, one of my teachers says, the only thing worse than someone who thinks he's not enlightened 
is someone who thinks he is enlightened. <laughs> you know, the two sides kind of of the same coin. So, um, so in this posture, in this physical and mental posture, we can accept things as they are. And then when we accept things and accept this moment and accept ourselves, we're not searching for some particular state of mind or some particular thing. We're not looking outside of this moment, but it's more like whatever the state of mind is, we already have it. So that's a little bit of my preamble to this quote, this teaching that I came across recently. Um, you know, with these things on the internet, it's hard to know if it's, if it's apocryphal or, you know, where does it come from or who said it? I couldn't, it's attributed to Joseph Campbell, who was, apocryphal means um, that it's of kind of unknown origin. Or may, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah. We'll have time for questions after. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, it might be apocryphal, and it's attributed to Joseph Campbell. But whoever said it, I think it's great. And um, he says, We must be willing to let go of the life we planned so as to have the life that is waiting for us. We must be willing to let go of the life we planned in order to have, so as to have the life that is waiting for us. You know, and I saw this and I thought, oh yeah, that's, that's really the Dharma. That's really this practice. And I think for many of us, the, the door, doorway into this practice is in some way or another, the plans we have, plans we had, the picture we have of who we are and what our life is about, in some way gets disrupted, you know? And it may be some, some you know, difficulty some unexpected difficulty, some uh, change in our health, you know, our physical or mental health, some, some change in uh, career or relationship or, you know, whatever it is. Life has a way of, <laughs> not going to use bad language, of messing with our plans. <laughs> <laughs> Life kind of rubs our nose in it <laughs> sometimes. And so, you know, we must be willing to let go of the life we planned. And when I, when I saw this, it made me, it, it reminded me of one of the early teachings I received when I was practicing here. Um, you know, I've been involved with IMC and Gill, um, 
you know, since, since around the year 2000, 99 or 2000. So it was a while, you know. And I was in my early 20s. And I remember taking, this is my memory, you know, it could be apocryphal. But um, my memory is taking a walk with Gil. And Gil saying, talking about something, and Gil saying, when when life gives you, or when you have the choice between the ideal and the actual, what do you choose? And I said, well, well, the ideal. Because the ideal is ideal, right? So shouldn't we want the ideal? And, um, and in my memory, he said something like, um, Max, the ideal doesn't exist. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, yeah, right. Um, so I think in a way this teaching is pointing to this decision, this choice that we often in our mind have of the ideal versus the actual. And the invitation um, of this practice is to choose the actual, to come back to the actual, to come back to what's happening. Um, because all there is is the actual, you know. Um, and, you know, of course we want the perfect something, whatever that means, the perfect teacher, the perfect partner, the perfect parents, the perfect, you know. Um, but that doesn't exist, you know. It doesn't exist maybe in the way that we think about it. Um, but I think the great uh, realization of this practice or the great offering of this practice is to discover a certain kind of perfection in the actual, a certain kind of completeness in this moment when I'm not comparing it to some other moment. In this meditation, when I'm not comparing it to, oh, I was a lot, was a lot better last time, or so, so, so. You know, when we're fully immersed in this, it's perfect. It's perfectly itself, and and this is. I think this is a gift of meditation, and it's also a gift that we can bring into our life and the people, the people in our life, um, to experience them as perfectly themselves. You know, not comparing to, and you know, with the holiday season. It's, you know, it's often joke that this is the great test of our, of our practice, of our wisdom, of our equanimity, right? You know, going home for the holidays, whatever, whatever that means. Um, and so can we let go of the holidays that we've planned and be open, be willing to have have the experience that's waiting for us. Um, there's something about planning, I think, 
maybe it's just that meditators notice, we notice our planning a lot more than folks maybe who don't meditate. We just sit and stew in it. And <laughs> but I remember early in my practice really getting this visceral sense that there's a payoff to planning. You know, I mean, of, of course, planning is a good thing in life in general. It's good to think about the future and, and organize ourselves and make plans. But there's also a way that I found for myself that this mental function of planning and mapping out the future and projecting myself into the future that functioned in a way of relieving a certain kind of tension, you know, the tension of the unknown, the tension of uncertainty. Oh my God, what's going to happen? Or I have to make a decision about that. And, uh, okay, well, if I just, you know, plan it out. Um, so this, you know, it's just helpful to see that, to see the way that um, whatever is happening in, in meditation, whether we're daydreaming, whether we're fantasizing, whether we're planning, whether we are um, lost in the past, in memories, in nostalgia, um, there's a function for, or there's a reason, you know, it's not random. And there's a certain kind of payoff in that. And often we find, or often I find, that when this moment, when the actual, when there's something uncomfortable about this actual moment, then that's when it's like, well, maybe there's a kind of pleasant fantasy that could be substituted right now. Or maybe there's a kind of some planning and, and figuring out that I can substitute right now and focus on that instead of, you know, the discomfort, the physical discomfort or the mental discomfort in this moment. So just to notice, just to notice this. And um, I think one, once we've lived for a little while, you know, we sort of, notice or figure out that planning has a kind of limitation to it. Life doesn't seem to ever, you know, at least in my experience, go according to our plans. And that's a good thing, I think, because the plans I had 20 years ago may have been great plans, but were also by their, by definition, by, they were limited they were limited to what I could see then, what I knew, my life experience. They were limited by, you know, the circumstances of that time. So I'm glad, you know, my life hasn't unfolded according to some idea that was stuck 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And, you know, my kids who are in grade school and, you know, sometimes say, I wonder, you know, I wonder what I'm going to be when I grow up and what, you know, one of them, at least at this moment, one wants to be an artist and an astronaut. And the other one wants to be a YouTube star. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, great. But, you know, what I say to them, you know, um, there will be ideas and careers and opportunities and interests when you're grown up that probably haven't even been invented yet, you know. And so keep an open mind, you know, and be willing to try new things and, and, um, and so I think that's what this teaching is about. It's like to stay, can we stay open and not get caught and stuck in, because planning and it's, that's, that's kind of dead. It's like an abstraction. And then when I remember that and I come back into this lived experience, this lived moment, it's like, oh yeah, there's a lot more going on that I, that I'm not even, I can't even see. And to stay open to that. And, um, I also think that it's, it's tragic when we get so, um, what I want to say, so So identified with our plans, you know, and kind of so caught inside a story um, in this area in Silicon Valley. Um, it's a it's a recurring news story that high schoolers and college students, you know, Stanford is right right down the street here. Um, you know, that there's been a suicide epidemic, you know, trying to figure out what's going on here. Um, and I don't know the particular details of any one particular case, but having been in, you know, in, in that community myself, and I was an older student at Stanford who helped to look after some of the younger students in the residence halls, and we had mental health crises and, and suicide attempts and things like this. And... Um, when if I'm a young person and my whole sense of who who I am is inextricably intertwined with achievement in a certain way and 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 getting you know the the thing that I've set out to do and accomplishing that and I've been able to do that and then all of a sudden you hit a wall and you, for whatever reason we can't, that can be very disorienting and, and, and destabilizing. And so, you know, to let go of the, to be willing to let go of the life we have planned, this can be a life and death thing. You know, this is, this is, um, this is real, you know, and how, how, how tightly do I hold on to something, some idea that's not serving me well, that's not even true, that's not, you know, and we think, oh my God, these, these kids have such an um, amazing future ahead of them and, and, and uh, can, can offer so much to the world, but, you know, we can get, get caught in something. So, you know, I think about this and, 
I was, uh, you know, just this on this topic of, of young people. It's not only young people, but it's, you know, I think it's especially um, an, an, an issue among younger people, can be. I was at a, a lecture by the great uh, um, physician and uh, psychiatrist Gabor Mate. Some of you might know who he is. He, he wrote a very important book about addiction. It was called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts. And he has a new book out called The Myth of Normal. Um, and, and he was asked, and so he gave a talk and then he was, he was asked, um, how can we not screw up our kids? <laughs> you know, and everybody laughed. And then he said, it's too late. <laughs> but then he said something quite wonderful, which I have been chewing on for all these years. And he said, um, He said, just love them. He said, just love them and let them teach you what they need. You know? And um, isn't that that wonderful? You know, that I I notice with my kids that they're they're each different. They come, come, kind of come into this world with their own personality and temperament. and, And I think... We each have our own destiny. We're each on our own path. And so to be careful of that, you know, for me to be careful of, you should do this and this and this and then this and, you know, and then your life will be like this and you'll be happy. Um, <laughs> one of my friends whose father was a, was a medical doctor, a physician, he said, I'm going to give you total freedom in life. You can be any kind of doctor you want. <laughs> you know? So do we do this as parents? Do we do this as partners, as friends? And, you know, it's such a gift to, um, be present and connected enough and respectful enough to another person that we, we we're perceiving who they are and, and letting them show us who they are and what they need and responding to that. You know, there's a kind of softness and flexibility of mind that is hard. You know, it's, we have our, uh, we have our issues. <laughs> and so um, in this practice, you know, it can be, if we let it, if we let go of our agenda, I think what's supposed to happen, think what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to be. If we let go of that, um, we can just love ourselves, you know, just love other people and let this moment teach us what's needed right now. You know, and sometimes what's needed will be a lot of care, a lot of kindness, a lot of compassion. You know, this sense of, of meditation is just pouring the water of compassion over our heads. You know. And then sometimes what's needed is a little, you know, 
sit up straighter. You know, follow the breathing. Come back to the breath. You know, open the eyes. Stay here. Sharpen the mindfulness. And, you know, so to be sensitive, to be responsive to um, what this moment is asking us. And there's no formula. Just like I think with parenting, there's no formula. In life, there's no formula. We're, we're responding. We're meeting the moment. We're responding. Um, and, maybe, and maybe this can be most challenging with the people in our life who we think we know the best. We know them. Oh, I know. I know what they're going to say. <laughs> I know how they are. You know, and that is um, understandable, you know, but it shuts something down rather than opening it up. And what it does is it freezes ourselves and others in a certain moment in time. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't allow the possibility that this person has changed, that I've changed. Of course we've changed, you know. And so for myself, and I offer that is as we go into, you know, this holiday season, which, which can bring up a lot of different emotions for a lot of different reasons. But sometimes it is about complicated relationships with people we are uh, familiar with, um, familial with, um, <laughs> you know. Can, can we stay open to, to um, the actual and what's in front of us and not letting it be so clouded by history and memory and ideas? And then it's like what could have been frozen is really alive. And, and that creates possibilities. You know, when we just show up and we're present, just like in sitting, we're present, we're open, stuff is going on, maybe unexpected sounds, maybe unexpected feelings in the body, unexpected thoughts, and we're just open to it and stay with it and respond to it. When we bring that into our life, um, it's, there's more chance for, for, for possibility, for serendipity, for connection. Um, and so I always, I love to, you know, when I remember, when I'm present enough, to just stay open to these moments of connection. And they're not necessarily these deep conversations. They may be going to the store, the grocery store, to buy something. And you, in the moment, you connect with the person or connect with the, the, cat, the checkout person or this or that. Um, it's great. It's great. And, um, maybe I'll, I'll end with this quote, uh, another, another quote, another teaching. And, and this is, um, something I quite like. It's from, uh, Kosho Uchiyama, who was one of the great, um, Buddhist monks and teachers um, from Japan in the in you know last century, 
And Uchiyama Roshi, Roshi means, you know, kind of respected teacher. Uh, Uchiyama Roshi was known for having, um, for offering these retreats in Japan. Japanese they call seshin, which is like a kind of meditation retreat. But he called it a retreat without toys. And the toys, in his mind, were the walking meditation (laughs) and the chanting (laughs) and the Dharma talks. (laughs) So these are kind of the elements of a retreat. You know, you're sitting and walking and then the talks and then the the meetings with the teacher, which is called, you know, in Japan, called dokusan or a practice interview and the, uh, the chanting. And so those are the toys for him. So get rid of all the toys. So what's left? Well, <laughs> just silent sitting and then silent bowing. So they would have a period of, of sort of service um, where normally maybe there would be chanting, but they would just do the silent bowing. Maybe it also like, stretch their legs or something. But, <laughs> so um, what, what interests me about that idea of a retreat without toys or a practice without toys is um, that there, I get a feeling that there's something very pure about it in a way. There's not even a talk for someone to kind of put something in your mind or say, hey, do it like this or think about this. It's just, you're just there with yourself, you know, and just meeting yourself over and over and over again. So I haven't done one of these, you know, I think he did a hundred day one when his teacher died. Yeah, I think normally they were like <laughs> seven days. So I'll let you know if we do something like that here, but uh, <laughs> don't hold your breath. Um, but he says, so, okay. So he says, to fall in love is ecstasy, but marriage is everyday life. Everyday life has rainy days, windy days, and stormy days. So you can't always be happy. It's the same with meditation. There are two kinds of meditation transmitted in Japan. One understands meditation as ecstasy, and the other understands meditation as everyday life. You know, um, so if we have some idea in our mind that we should be experiencing ecstasy, (laughs) whether in our meditation or our life, um, you know, we're liable to suffer. We're liable to be disappointed at times. We're liable to struggle and resist the actual experience of what's happening because I have this idea in my head. But if meditation itself is everyday life, whatever the weather is, you know, then, oh, okay, that's something I can settle into. That's something that every single one of us not only can do, we're already doing it, you know. Um, Someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, the, the Zen teacher, something like, um, it's like, this practice is impossible. And he said, yes. And then they said, 
if it's impossible, how, how can we do it? And he said, you do it every day. <laughs> you know, you're already doing it. Um, so he goes on to say, I don't know if I should keep going, but maybe I'll just share a little bit more. He goes on to say, um, a basic concept in Buddhism is that subject and object are one. The significance of this depends on whether you interpret the samadhi of oneness as a psychological condition of ecstasy that mystically transcends the limits of the everyday mind or whether you actually practice it in your daily life. You know, so what does it mean to practice this oneness in our daily life? And for me, that means to be fully in the middle of our life without resistance, to be show up and to be totally here and just do this and just do this. And when it's time to drive the kids to soccer, that's what we do. When it's time to meditate, that's what we do. When it's time to um, eat, enjoy, enjoy your food. Enjoy your... I remember one of, one of the the early days of Tassajara, this Zen monastery that we have in Carmel Valley, the Japanese teacher, you know, I think in the 60s, everybody smoked maybe, but the Japanese teachers were coming and they would say, don't walk and smoke. You know, when you smoke, sit down and enjoy your cigarette. <laughs> Be a one with what you're doing. You know? And, um, we don't, we don't use that example so much anymore. But, <laughs> but whatever life gives us, can we keep our awareness? And so he says, it is the practice of continuous awareness in the midst of delusion without attachment to delusion or enlightenment the practice of continuous awareness in the midst of delusion. Isn't that great? You know, you know, so it's like not quite that we're going to remove delusion. One day we're going to remove all delusion and there'll only be what? Clarity, enlightenment, peace. It's the practice of continuous awareness right in the midst of delusion, which is also called our life. <laughs> you know, without being attached to what happens. Um, there was, there was a, a great scroll, a teaching in, a, in the meditation hall that said something like, don't remove delusion. Don't even seek the truth. It's like, what? <laughs> Isn't that what we're, this practice is? Don't remove delusion. Don't even seek the truth. To, to me, this means to return to the actual, you know, to choose the actual. And the actual moment, the actual experience is much closer, is much more alive than any of these labels, you know. Um, and, and then maybe there's a way that these two forms of meditation that he's talking about they meet somewhere in the middle and become one in the middle. And we can experience the beauty and completion and joy 
and wonder of this ordinary moment in our everyday life. So, thank you very much. And know if we have a, do we have time for questions or, yeah, for a little bit? Oh. Okay, so if anyone has a, yeah. I have a question that I guess is just like this. Yeah, hold it real close to your mask. How's that? Yeah, good. Okay. Um, I have a question, maybe a little more talking and nuance about the actual versus ideal. I think what confuses me and comes up a lot is when I hear actual and acceptance, it quickly turns into complacency. Mm. And when I hear ideal, I hear a different set, you know, of aspiration and tension, it seems more drawing. And the example I was thinking of is like, and maybe this is apocryphal, (laughs) choose the word of the day, Um, you know, the sort of picturing someone like Nelson Mandela, who's actual on many days was whatever his experience was in prison, right? Very actual. And yet there's an actual that was also that he was actually the potential of a transformative change. Mm-hmm. So how do you be present to the actual, that's the taste of your food, your feet on the floor, and also the actual that is bigger? And I think that's, that is not complacent. That is maybe what drew you to that word ideal and draws me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, great question. So... You know, I agree with you, and I think that there's a way that um, we're drawn to the ideal, you know, and and there's probably something wholesome and productive and beautiful in that, and then also something that's not that great in in in, in that that attraction to the ideal. And like you said, you know, what's beautiful about it is, is that the human imagination can conceive of the way, way things can be better and should be better. And that's important. I don't think any of us would, would, you know, um, be ill served by having the widest, deepest, grandest aspirations for ourselves and for our life and for the world. So that's important. And then the other side of that is, um, how do I relate to that ideal? And is the ideal something that I'm measuring myself? Is it, is it a tool to just hate myself more? You know, well, look at the monk, look at Nelson Mandela. He didn't complain. <laughs> Why am I complaining about, you know, about the coffee's cold? Something, you know, that's not that great, I think. And so how do we, you know, I think it comes back to, you know, kind of like I said, the posture, the relationship that we have to these ideas and to these concepts. Can we use our hopes, our, our, our dreams, our aspirations to inspire us, you know, to set the direction of our life in, in, in a wide way? And then can we skillfully know when to set that aside? especially in the experience of meditation. 
yeah, I want to, you know, my, my goal is to really deeply understand these great refined meditation states and this and that and that. And that. Great. But when we sit down to meditate, if I'm thinking about those refined meditation states, that's not going to, first of all, it's not going to help me get there. And it's also, I'm totally miss, missing what's happening right now. And it may be what's happening right now is I'm caught in a loop of thinking about these great things. That's fine, as long as we're aware of that. But so is there a way, maybe as you're pointing to in the question, like that the actual and the ideal sort of merge, that we are connected enough to use the ideal in a skillful way, to know when to let it inspire us, and to know when it's getting in the way, you know? And actually, actually, um, the way there, whatever there is, is only through here, right? You know, there's no, there's no other place that I can train on the breath than this particular breath in this moment. You know, it's like, well, I'll be with the breath in about five minutes. You know, that never tends to work. Well, or in the next, next Sunday, or, you know, in the next retreat. I, so many times I've been on retreat, I'm planning out my next retreat. Because in the next retreat, it's going to be a little better. In the next retreat, I'll really be present. Not, you know, it's like, hello, I'm here on retreat right now, but I'm thinking about the next retreat. So this is what our minds do. And, but I think, there's, I think there's an important place for ideals and for idealism. And... Um, one of the other ways that those loop back and connect is the more I'm actually present and aware of how things are now, that can inspire, that can give me an understanding and an inspiration for what needs to change. You know, if I'm not aware of how things are, then I'm not necessarily conscious of the problems, the deficiencies, and whether, and that's, you know, that could be, speaking personally, that could be on a societal level. You know, hey, the more I connect with whatever it is, this company, this group, this thing, I see, there's something about this community that doesn't feel right to me and that it could, needs to change or needs to grow, needs to be included. If I'm, oh, it's, you know, oh, it's a Buddhist community, it's perfect. It's, you know, I mean, that's, that's a kind of idealism. But if, if I'm really here with the actual, then, then I see cl- with clarity how, how it is and, and then can be inspired to, to do something and change something. So I think it can act against complacency if we let it. Um, but it's a great question. And it's a, it's a nuanced thing. Thank you. Okay. Um, I have three kids in college. And they're all coming home for the holidays, and they all came... Oh, that's better. And they all came home for Thanksgiving. And this was the first time it happened just like this, you know, them all coming back to this house. And, and So um, my question is, I understand how to love them, but they don't always understand how to love each other. Mm. And it was interesting and a little scary for me to watch them get back together and old feuds spark up and things like that. 
Do you have any thoughts on how I can help them with that process? Yeah, yeah. Um, in about ten seconds, I'll know. <laughs> um, you know, the first thing that that came into my mind was that um, I can imagine, and just remembering from my own experience, there's a way that, especially when you know young people go away to college, you know, it's an exciting time and this thing. But there's a lot of different kinds of pressures, and and there's there's a lot of there can be a lot of um, what do I want to say like you know trying on different personas you're with different kinds of people you're in you know it's the first kind of first time you're on your on their own but that kind of tension and then when you come back home it's like not not only may, you know maybe is it a comfortable place or a place where you you can kind of let go of 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 some of that tension but it's also it's sort of like when you've been on your best behavior all day and then you come home and like scream at someone at home which you would never do at work or you would never do you know and because it's like all that willpower has been spent up trying to be likable and this and that and studious and and then you kind of it's exhausted and then you kind of come home and it's like all right it's a free for all you know and just let let the the demons come out and so i don't know if exactly if that's what's happening but um you know i i think that you know as a parent, what we can do is to, you know, is to love them and is to, um, you know, is, as much as we can um, create create a space where um, may, maybe underneath, you know, if whatever, you know, if come back and there's, ang- there's anger and there's kind of, you know, maybe underneath that anger is some sadness or some loneliness or some fear vulnerability. So if there's any way that we as parents can help them touch into and express, you know, some of those maybe closer, you know, more, you know, um, emotions that might be driving some of this, then, then that, that, um, that could be helpful. But I, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, they're old enough now that they, you know, might need to be responsible for their own actions and, and um, impact on others. But, um, yeah, I, yeah that's, that's what I would say. But, and, and then hopefully they'll be gone soon. So... <laughs> 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 Back to the wonderful lives, and, um, but it, you know that sibling relationship is such a complicated thing, and it's my my daughter. My, my I have two girls who are ten and eight, and then a, a little boy who's much younger. But my daughter was asked to write an essay about the most influential person in her life, and she chose her sister. Wow, her older sister, her younger sister, yeah. two years wow. younger. And she said, my sister is my best friend and my closest. And, you know, she's always there for me. We, we 
walk to school together every morning. We sleep in the same bed. She protects me when my parents are upset. She cheers me up when young is very funny. And she kind of makes, makes me laugh when I'm nervous about something. And so I read this to my wife and my wife had kind of teared up and she was like, who are these girls? I don't recognize them. <laughs> you know, because they're fighting and they're this and they're that. Um, of course, they're close. And, but I think that from inside a sibling relationship, it may look and feel very different than it looks to us. You know, and to also remember that, that they have this unshakable bond, hopefully. Two of mine are twins. Yeah. Boy-girl twins. But, yeah. Trickiest pairing there can be in any siblings. What did you say? It, Two of mine are twins, boy-girl twins, which is the trickiest, most fraught sibling wow. relationship, according to wow. the studies. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 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 So, so it's complicated, but, but you know, that we, we don't really see what they, you know, what they have. Right. And... And so, yeah. But, Thank you. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone.